What could be taken from you that if it disappeared from your life would cause you a great deal of distress or possibly even you'd feel incapacitated? What could be taken from you? Could it be your business? Could it be your home? Could it be a career? I mean, what could be taken from you that would leave you feeling crippled? Would leave you feeling as if you couldn't go on? For some of us, it could be our spouse. It would grant that type of crippling effect. Now, what if God asked you to give it up? Now, I want to say this. God doesn't ask you to give up your spouse. But what if God asked you to give it up? What if God asked you to give up your career? What if God asked you to give up your house? What if God asked you to give up a comfort? What if God asked you to give something else? What would you do then? Many of you know that I've been working with and discipling the young Karen men. I'll meet with them after this service at 12.30, and I'll preach at their service at 2. And, and as I've done that, last week we were meeting, and I've been taking them through the book of Ephesians. Uh, but on their own, they started their own study through the gospel of Matthew. And they were going through Matthew. They got to the portion where Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, take it off. So they're all sitting there with me, and they're like, Dwayne. Well, they, and they don't ever say Dwayne. It's Pastor Dwayne. Pastor Dwayne. They're like, we've been reading these texts. What is God asking us to do there? Like, does he literally want us to take off our hands and pluck out our eye? Because a few weeks ago, as they were studying, they got to John the Baptist, and as John the Baptist is there uh, in the text, and it talks about how in other parts of Scripture that he's the Elijah to come, they're like, well, is this like Elijah reincarnated? I'm like, no, the Bible is not about reincarnation. I have to explain all that to them, that this is John the Baptist in terms of his prophetic gift now lies, uh, Elijah's prophetic gift now lies on, on John the Baptist. It's, it's a type, and he's the forerunner to Christ. So I said, in the same way, God doesn't want you to cut off your hand or pluck out your eyes. What he does want you to do is hate sin so much, take sin so seriously that you're willing to get rid of anything in your life that might cause you to stumble or to sin. So they said, oh, that's way better. I said, okay. So I said, how many of you have struggled looking at pornography? Right? I'm not going to tell you how many of them did. And how many of you have struggled looking at pornography on your phones? And how many of you, I said, are still struggling with pornography on your phones? And I said, if that's something that you're still wrestling with, maybe you should get rid of your phones. Now, you would think I had just asked them to cut off their hand. It was incomprehensible to them in that moment. It, it seemed easier for them to cut off their hand than to get rid of a cell phone. Like, a cell, what are you talking about, Dwayne? How would we ever live without our cell phone? How would we ever function without our cell phone? I mean, it's, it's the means by which everybody connects to us. But I said, what if it's the means by which the enemy is attacking you? The means by which the enemy is prohibiting your spiritual growth. So we talked about that for several minutes and what that looks like. But what could God call you to give up so that you could further honor him and follow him that you would actually say no to? If you have your Bibles, Genesis 22, beginning at verse 1. Some time later, so Ishmael has now been sent out. We do not know how long the time frame is. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says some time later, God tested Abraham. Now again, that's the narrator. That's the narrator of Genesis telling us that Abraham was tested. Abraham doesn't know he's being tested. He just knows that God is about to ask him to do something. God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, here I am, he said. 
Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him. Uh, there is a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And so here you have God telling him that he is to go to Moriah and sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Now that may raise some confusion because we know he has another son, Ishmael. But here, because Isaac was the son of promise, and Ishmael comes by way of sin and the maidservant Hagar, God is referring to Isaac, which he'll do several times in Scripture, as Abraham's only son. At this point, Abraham has other son later. And it's because Isaac is seen as the son of promise, the one of whom God will work. Now, I need to pause here for a couple of things. God asked him to present him as a burnt offering. Now, a burnt offering is the offering of propitiation. We see it first with Noah. God, uh, when he's connected, or when Noah comes off the ark, he offers a burnt offering. We see it in the Levitical law. It's the first offering mentioned that's there. And this burnt offering is the one that shows complete surrender. Complete surrender. So he's asking him to take his son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. Now we know, because this raises all kinds of complexities, that God is against human sacrifice. God has said that. He says it in his word. He detested the practices of neighboring religions that required human sacrifices, whether they be adults or children. So what's going on here? Well, Abraham has just lost his other son, Ishmael. Ishmael, as a teenage boy, has been sent off. He's like 15 or 16, uh, and he's been sent off because Isaac is the son of promise. Abraham, as you remember in the text, was greatly distressed by that. And in his great distressing, God's now saying, do you trust me enough that I can send away Isaac as well. I could send away Isaac as well. Now you may ask, there's all kinds of reasons people come up with, why did God do this? If God's against human sacrifice, why did God test Abraham in this way? And there's only one answer to it. Sometimes you can read commentaries, you'll find nine or ten answers, but there's one. Only one answer. Here's the answer. Because he's God. Now we don't like that answer. But we are creatures, he is creator. He is God and he is other. He is supremely other. We are not just a notch below God. God is so far above us, he needs nothing to exist. He doesn't need water, he doesn't need air, he doesn't need people. He needs nothing to exist. He exists in and of himself. He is God. And he can require of us whatever he wants to require of us because he is God and we are not. And so this is how God chooses to test Abraham. So early in the morning, Abraham gets up, he loads his donkey, he takes with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. Now this is different, and if you watch the narrator here, you can see, as I believe Moses is narrating the story that there's a contrast. It's a very specific contrast. In the other situations in Abraham's life, you find what? She's my sister. He laughs at the or the possibility that in his old age he'll have a son. He thinks it's comical. How is that possible? He ends up sleeping with his maidservant, Hagar, because God's taking too long to provide Isaac. And so constantly Abraham sins, and in his sin he's constantly moving away from God or not trusting God. But it looks like Abraham's learned some lessons. 
And very early the next morning, he gets up and he loads his donkey. He doesn't debate. He doesn't fight. He just gets up and does what God has asked. He takes his two, ser- or two of his servants with him and his son Isaac. Now, it's interesting here that it notes that he cuts his own wood. We don't know why Abraham does it. There's all kinds of speculation. I mean, he brings two servants with him who could have cut the wood. He has, as we've learned, his own secret service agency going on here. He's powerful enough with enough servants that other kings respect him and fear him. We saw that last week. Again, in this week's text, well, I guess we won't see because we won't get to that part in chapter 23. I won't read it, but, but the Hittite uh, leader calls him a prince. And so that's how powerful Abraham has become on the planet, but he cuts the wood himself for whatever reason he chooses to do that. And they go out um, toward the place. It takes three days to get there. Or on the third day, he sees the place in the distance. They're on their way there. So he says to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So however you look at this, there's a couple of things that I think are important. One is this. Isaac is able to carry the wood, enough wood to offer himself as a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice, though Isaac doesn't know that's what the wood's for. So Isaac's old enough and strong enough that he can carry the wood. So he's likely a teenage boy. He's not a child anymore. He's not two or three like we found when Ishmael was sent off. He's likely older than that. I mean, we, we don't know exactly how old, but he's, he's older than just a young child. And I think the second thing that's really important here is Abraham's faith. We will go and worship God and note this, plural, we will come back. Abraham's not only confident that they're going to go and worship God, but he's confident that even though he knows what God has requested, that the two of them, we, are coming back. So as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. So somehow in their tradition, this is something Isaac was used to. He'd seen these offerings before. And he says, we have the wood, we have the fire, we have no lamb. And at this point, it doesn't seem to indicate in the text that Abraham even explains to him, um, there isn't a lamb because you're the, you're the sacrifice. At some point, there is some dialogue. I would think about that because then in the next scene, we have this. When they reached the place where God had told him about, Abraham built an altar, so this is going to take time. He doesn't have his servants do it. He does it himself. He arranges the wood on it, and then he binds his son Isaac and lays him on the altar on top of the wood. When he reached his hand out and took the knife to slay his son, the angel of the Lord called out from him, uh, to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld with, from me your son, your only son. So somewhere in here, I also give Isaac some credit because I think he's old enough that with his dad being the age he is, well over 100 years, is he 113, is he a, whatever he would be now, he actually could have battled his dad a bit. He could have been like, what are you doing here, dad? Like, how am I doing this? So somewhere in here, in a conversation we don't have, Abraham said to Isaac, this is what God wants, and Isaac agreed to it. 
And so he's bound. I don't think the text indicates, it's not the word in the Hebrew, that he overpowered his son. The idea is just that, is that he bound him. And as Isaac is there and bound, the Lord calls out from the angel, Abram, Abram, don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. And then God tells us exactly why he had Abraham go through this test. It's right here in the text. Now I know you fear God. Now I know you fear God. Now for many of us, that's a hard concept. We like the idea of loving God. We like the idea of God loving us, but fearing the Lord is something we struggle with. In fact, I remember being on a walk with someone a number of years ago who said, I can't love a God that I have to fear. And I said this, and this is true. You won't love a God you can't fear. If you can't fear God, you won't truly ever be able to love him. You can't. You can't. Because God is not a being that is just a little bit above us. God is a being who supremely holds the universe together by his might and will. Our universe is held together today because of God. We are here today because of God. I am breathing today because of God. And like I said earlier, God needs nothing. He doesn't need air. He doesn't need food. He requires nothing to exist. He simply exists because he is. That's how magnificently powerful God is. He is supremely God. And we are to fear him. The idea of the term fear isn't shaking your boots fear. It's you stand in reverence and awe of God. He's unlike anything we know. Unlike anything we can understand. I mean, who do you know that can just speak things into existence and to show up? Who do you know that can sustain the world by his might or her might? Who do you know that is able to affect their will regardless of any circumstance or situation that he is able to do what he wants because he's God? It's why when in the book of Matthew you have the two criminals which are likely insurrectionists, rebels, on each side of Jesus. They're not thieves. Often we hear about the thief on the cross. They weren't thieves. You weren't crucified under Roman law for thief, thievery, for stealing. You were crucified for crimes that demanded capital punishment. So the criminals were likely insurrectionists. They were rebels against the state. And they're hanging on the other side of Christ. They're mocking Jesus. In the book of Matthew, in the Matthew account, you find both of them are mocking Jesus. And then you move to the Gospel of Luke, and in the Gospel of Luke, as the one criminal continues to mock Jesus, the other one says, stop. And remember those first words? Don't you fear God. We're being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man, he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. Don't you fear God. He knew that Jesus was so intimately connected to God that God was the one to fear. Why are you mocking this man? He's got a deep connection to God, and God is not someone you mock. He's someone you fear. You stand in respect and reverence and awe of. So that's what the angel says. I know you have a deep fear of God. Abraham, you have shown us, shown God, that you fear him. So Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over 
and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And so God provides them with a sacrifice. God provides them with this ram and they sacrifice the ram. So the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he says, I swear by myself. Now that's fascinating. I hear people swear by all kinds of things. I've heard people say, I swear by all that is good. I've heard people say, I swear on my mother's grave. And what they're saying is, you not, may not be able to trust my integrity, but I so commit to this, you could so count on what I'm saying, that on my mother's deathbed, God says, I swear by myself. What is that? God is saying, I so self-exist. I am so powerful. Nothing can stop what I want to accomplish, and you'll see what he wants to accomplish in a moment, that by myself I am able to swear because nothing can stop me. I am God. I am God alone. And what does he swear? That because you have done this, you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars on the sky and the sand of the seashores. Your enemy, your, sorry, your descendants will take possession of the cities of the enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants. They set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So here you have two things as part of the blessing. One, his descendants are going to become as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sand on the sea. Sure. That that's the nation of Israel. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the barren one so fruitful that through your son Isaac, People will be scattered throughout the entire world. You will be a great nation. But two, he says, I want you to know that every nation on the earth will be blessed because of you. That's powerful. Every nation on the earth will be blessed because of you. And why? Did you catch why? Because you have obeyed me. The salvation that God gives us is based on his grace. It's by grace we are saved. You cannot be more saved tomorrow than you are today. If you are saved, you are saved. That's it. If you are saved, you are saved. You can't be more saved tomorrow than you are today. You are saved. But God's blessing comes from our obedience. Now, God can bless in spite of our obedience. He sometimes chooses to do it. But God often chooses to bless because of our obedience. And it's very specific here that it's because Abraham obeyed that what will happen? Because he obeyed three things. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. They will take the possession of the cities of your enemy. That's still verse 17. And then verse 18, all of the nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed. Now I want you to pause there for a moment. This is Abraham. And this is his blessing. The blessing of Abraham's obedience in this moment is so staggeringly large when you think of who God is and what God's able to do in Abraham. It's so insurmountably big that your descendants will be as large as an incountable number, uncountable number. I will give you the land of your enemies. 
and every nation on the earth will be blessed because of you. Because you've obeyed. So if you think now, how does this work out today? Well, as Jesus came, died, and was resurrected again, what does he tell us? He tells us as in his resurrected body, end of the Gospel of Matthew, right? Go into all the world, make disciples of every nation, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We now, as God's people, are to go forth to all the world and declare the hope we have in Christ with everyone. We're to make God known to all the nations. We're part of the plan of God's purpose of Abraham's obedience in being able to take the blessing of God to the world. And every nation is able to hear about who God is and what he's done because of the powerful work of our God linked to the obedience of Abraham. To the obedience of Abraham. So what could God call you to do that you would say no to? What could God call you to give up that you would rather not give up? What could God ask you that you would say no? God, I'm not going to do that. God asked Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his son. And Abraham not only believed that God would allow them to worship him, he believed that God would allow the two of them to return. And so he said, well, God, everything is resting on the promise that through Isaac, you will bless. And so I'm believing that in you asking me to do something that is ludicrous, seemingly so, that you will be in it, that you will be in it. We were at my parents yesterday for a few minutes um, to say happy Father's Day to my dad. And, and while we were there, I've been here 26 years. I've loved being here. But my mom asked me, you know, have you ever thought of what you would do next and what that would look like? And I said, Oh, you know, I, I've pondered a few things, but I said, I said, if there is a next, right? I said, I said I'm, I'm often caught off or burdened by the fact that there's two billion people on the planet right now who've never heard the gospel. And right now at our present rate of evangelism, we'll never hear the gospel. Now, my mom has never been on the plane, and the thought of her grandchildren being somewhere where she has never been would throw her. So I, I explained to her that, you know, what, what if we were in the 1040 window? My mom was like, what is the 1040 window? And, uh, and so I'm preaching at their church in a couple of weeks coming off of holidays, and I think maybe that Sunday I'll give a Mission Sunday emphasis so my mom knows what the 1040 window is. But with that said, uh, my mom looked at Jewel and Ivy and said to them, you know, we need missionaries in Canada. And she began to explain the missionaries we need in Canada. And I'm like, Mom, I agree with that, and I agree with that. That's why you're here in Canada. You're here to be that missionary, Mom. Um, but when I explained to her that there's two billion people on the planet that have never heard of Jesus, it really threw her and what that looks like. I mean, what could God call you to do? For, for my mom, and I'm not saying God's calling her to do this right now, it would be giving up her grandkids for a season like that. They see them all the time. They love to see them. And that would be a, an incredible, incredible uh, stretch. So chapter 23, Sarah dies. I'm not going to read it. Um, as Sarah passes away, she's 127 years old. It's the only time recorded for us in the encounters or, or, or the life of Abraham that's recorded where Abraham weeps. Abraham weeps and mourns over his wife's death, which says how much he loved Sarah. And so he weeps over her death. He's likely 137, and then he, he comes to the Hittites and he asks for land. They offer to give him land because he's a great prince, and he wants the land to bury Sarah in. He wants a large burial plot. Um, they offer to give him the land, but he's like, no, I don't, I don't want you to give me the land. And he doesn't want them to give him the land 
because he wants them to be able to, he doesn't want them to be able to say later, see, Abraham owes us. We, we gave him the land. So he says to them after some banter in chapter 23, name your price. They name the price. Now normally, in those days and in that culture, which is still true in many cultures, you would then go back and forth on the price. Abraham just said, I'll pay that price. I've seen this at work. My wife, Amy, is one of the best barterers I've ever seen. Whether it's Kijiji Marketplace or a number of years ago before the twins were born, we went to Kenya. And I remember Amy, the first time she went to the market, the missionaries were all prepping Amy about how to barter, about how not to get ripped off, about how not to pay too much. She went to the market, they came back, and the missionary said, we, we think she ripped them off. They, she didn't get ripped off at all. Like, now, that's not true. They were just like, like, that woman can barter, Dwayne. You have married a woman who can barter. Like, they were like, you know, this price, she's like this price. They're like this price, she's like this price. And then Amy, they said she would just walk away from them. She wasn't, and then they were like, no, 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 what, no, no, what would you pay, what would you pay? And, uh, and she would get what she wanted for what she paid for. Now, the irony of this is we got some beautiful things from Kenya to take home that uh, all got lost on the airplane. We never got our luggage back. They were all just gone and irreplaceable um, in that time. So we bartered for naught. But Abraham doesn't barter. He says, that's the price. I don't want to think anyone ever owes God or me. I'll pay the price. So as I wrap up, and I need to do this quickly, we're a little over in the service, but we had to celebrate two baptisms. We're so excited, but I want you to hear a few verses. In Hebrews 11, it speaks of Abraham's faith. By faith, Abraham, verse 17, when God tested him, notice it's mentioned again that it's a test, second time, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through your son Isaac that your offspring would be reckoned. Listen to this. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead so that in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. He said Abraham reasoned that God was able to raise Isaac back to life again if necessary. That's why he may have said, we will go and worship, we will come back. Abraham had that kind of faith. The second thing that I think is really important for me here is Abraham's obedience. Because it lets me know there's hope even for me. Do you remember the story of Abraham so far? Twice, she's my sister. Sleeps with his maidservant. Laughs at the prospect of having a baby at his old age, even though it's God that's telling him. On multiple occasions, scriptures show us Abraham's faults and Abraham's faltering. And I feel like that's like me a lot. Maybe it's even like you. And then in chapter 21, God probably grants him the most difficult task, I would say, not just probably, I think he grants him the most difficult task he's faced. And Abraham just goes and does it because he wasn't done with Abraham yet. And God's not done with you yet. Is that not good news? He's still at work in your life. Though there's been faltering and though there's been failing and though there's been struggle, God's not done with you yet. He still has a plan for you. God still has a plan for you so that as you walk out into this next phase of life and you take those steps of obedience, God's like, I still want to bless you. I still want to walk with you. I have not forsaken you. That which God has started in you, he plans to see through to completion or to fruition. He is your God and he loves you. And then lastly and quickly, Mount Moriah becomes a very, very significant place. Second Chronicles 3 tells us this. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem 
on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. So all of a sudden you realize that the very temple that God built years later is on the same mountain where Abraham was called to sacrifice his son. And you realize in that moment that at that temple, lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb would have been sacrificed over and over and over again. That could never take away the sins of the world. Could only remind us our need for a savior. And maybe like Isaac, people eventually were calling out, we're still in our sins. Where is the, where is the Messiah? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? That, that's what Isaac says. Where is the lamb? And finally, in the fullness of time, God provides the lamb. He sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who cloaks his deity with humanity, who comes to live among us, who dies for our sin in his stead because he never sinned, who three days later was raised to life again. That was Dennis's testimony this morning. That's Mark's testimony today. That God has so powerfully worked in their lives that they now know they are his children. And that the sacrifice they should have gone through, the hell they should have endured, Jesus, the Lamb of God, endured in their place, in my place. And because he did it, he did it once for all because he's perfectly God's son. And so no lamb needs to be sacrificed ever again. Kevin and Sarah, you guys can come up. Would you pray with me? We are so thankful for your incredible sacrifice, Lord Jesus and we're so thankful that you are the great Lamb of God. We're thankful that you would sacrifice yourself for us. And then, God, when it comes to things that you ask us to do so often, we, we are just queasy about it, God. We pause, we hesitate. What would we do without that? Could we really move there? What, what could you call us to, God, that we'd rather say no to? When we realize that you were so willing to have us as your children that you didn't say no to us, but rather you sent your son Jesus to die. And he became that lamb for us. So cause us today, O oh God, to be so thankful for your work in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we conclude the service today, we're going to celebrate communion. Communion is a time where we take a wafer that's in the top of this container and juice. And the wafer reminds us of the body of Christ. That Christ's body was here, he incarnated himself. He cloaked his deity with humanity. He came and lived down. And his body was broken. And the juice represents the blood of Christ. That Jesus had his blood shed so that I could be saved. That the wrath of the Father was poured out on him. Kevin and Sarah are about to lead us in worship of a song as they do so. If you didn't pick up one of these on the way in, they're on the table outside of the room. You're welcome to go and get one. But I need to say a couple of things about communion. This is for believers. So today, if you've crossed that line of faith where you've trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, we invite you to take this wafer and remember Jesus, to take this cup and drink it and remember him, because we do this in remembrance of what Christ has done. But the Bible says there's three reasons why we don't take it. One, if you're not a believer. If you're not a believer, just watch as others celebrate. Two, if you're walking in unrepentant sin, if you're not walking in repentance, that we should first come to God in repentance. And three, it says, if you're in division between you and another believer, that's 1 Corinthians 11. And so if there's division between you and another believer, the Apostle Paul says, make sure you rectify that, that difference. Make sure that you make right, you reconcile there before you take it to the table so you don't ever take it in an unworthy manner. So through this song, I would invite you to spend some time reflecting 
on the glorious sacrifice of Jesus Christ the Lord and what he's done for us, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed. And through this song at some point, as you feel led by the Lord, we invite you to take that wafer and drink the cup and celebrate what God has done in the person of Jesus. And then after a few moments, I will come up and I will pray to close that portion off. Let me pray. You are God and you are good. We're so thankful, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. You are the Lamb of God and your blood was shed instead of ours. And we're thankful today that we can hold this cup, this wafer and this juice that reminds us of your body and blood broken and shed for us so that our bodies don't need to be broken and our blood need not be shed. But rather... Your wrath, Father, was appeased by your Son, our Savior, Jesus. For that, all we can say is thank you and amen. In Jesus' name.